a podcast one production. G'day, Adam Spencer here with another edition of The Big Questions. I emceed the Singularity U event in Sydney. If you haven't heard of Singularity U, it's the concept of people thinking on the topic of our exponentially growing technologies. What impact will the move towards artificial intelligence, robotics, etc. have on the world in which we live? Now, our last episode of The Big Questions featured Mandy Simpson, the chief executive of Wellington-based consultancy CyberToa, explaining from basic first principles the concept of blockchain. If you haven't had a listen to that episode yet, I strongly recommend you go back and, and run your ears over that to get the concept of the blockchain and how we can future-proof that technology down pat. Well, now let's ask, how could you apply blockchain in the real world? Not in the world of cryptocurrencies or finances, but in, of all places, cataloguing rare gemstones. Louise Mercer comes from Everledger, an organisation that's using blockchain to keep track of gems from around the world. I asked Louise, how does blockchain work in the real world? Louise Mercer from Everledger, welcome to The Big Questions. Thanks, Adam. Super to be here. So we've heard about this amazing thing, blockchain, and people have got the cryptocurrency Experience. They've seen bitcoins go up in value and down in value, and everyone's had their cab driver say, dude, you've got to invest right now. But they don't just, as Mandy hinted at, they don't just underpin cryptocurrencies. You live in a real-world example of where blockchain's being used for something. Tell us about Everledger. Sure. Look, I think the the real innovation to pay attention to is blockchain itself. and As at- opposed to the currencies it currently is known by most people to underpin. The currencies are fascinating and I think they will run their course and, um, you know, the world will figure out how to use them and uh, and the suitability of purpose for them. But for me, blockchain is the really interesting bit that gives backbone and structure. It's the infrastructure, if you like, that really excites me. Uh, look at Everledger. We are concerned with the provenance of objects. So the story of an object's life cycle from from its origin through its chain of custody. We started with diamonds and at Everledger we track and trace the diamond from where it was dug out of the earth, the artisan who cut and polished it, the jeweller who set it and sold it, the grader who authenticated it, to the diamond that now sits on your finger. People would understand why that sort of thing is relevant. Sometimes diamonds come from bad places, war conflict zones, Leonardo DiCaprio films, that sort of stuff. Uh, I presume also some people are wearing what they think are diamonds that aren't real diamonds artificially created, that sort of stuff? Yeah, look, the industry had real challenges. So you've got these very small, very highly valuable um, assets and conflict stones, so stones that are mined from areas without uh, an internationally recognised government with human rights exploitation and violation and often funding things like terrorism, you know, Mm -hmm. they needed to ensure that those diamonds weren't entering the supply chain. And equally, you just mentioned uh, synthetic diamonds, so diamonds that are cultivated in a lab. They are presenting as natural stones and sometimes they are being substituted for natural stones, which are presently worth more. So your ability to tell them apart is really important. And when you're talking things that are worth, you know, thousands or in, you know, the case of Carl Stefanovic and his girlfriend, from what I understand, $120,000 for a diamond. It's important to get these things right. Okay, so 
I can imagine how a, a Bitcoin, which doesn't really exist as a coin, like a $2 coin or thing. Bitcoins exist online and blockchain's an online thing. I can understand how Bitcoins and blockchain might line up. How do I blockchain a real thing, a, a diamond? We take 40 points of ID, um, in fact, even more. We take all the usual things that you'd think of with a diamond, like it's the four Cs, it's cut, cut it's clarity. Cut. Yeah. Oh, look, you know it. Have no, you been buying no. diamonds for your loved one? Not for my ex-wife. <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> and we also take a lot of information that is forensic level. So things like the sound that it makes under certain circumstances and the mapping of the inclusions, um, the fissures and structures within a diamond. And a lot of that stuff is not commonly known about. We take that data, we encrypt it, and we put it on the blockchain. Okay, so let's say there are 40 different numbers or maps or whatever that uniquely identify a diamond. You then put it on the blockchain. What does that mean? Where where are you putting it? So we're taking the information, we're digitising it, we are encrypting it, and then we are adding it to a blockchain. Now, blockchains can be public or private. You've got your public Bitcoin blockchain and you've got private blockchains like Hyperledger. So for us, we're creating a, a ledger that's relevant and useful for the diamond industry that can span across supply chains and various stakeholders in that supply chain. And that's where we're logging it. So it's, it's a distributed ledger. The ledger of that information is held across all of those parties. They've all got a complete picture of so, that information. So the blockchain, you're very right. Imagine, am I right to picture, say, a giant spreadsheet of information about all these different diamonds and everyone in the We Work With Diamonds Club gets access to that spreadsheet? Yeah, I think it's tricky if, because... If my the, analogy's wrong, shoot it down. The mental model of a spreadsheet centralizes the idea of the data in people's minds whereas the key bit about a blockchain is that it's distributed so yes it's like a spreadsheet but everybody has a full copy of the spreadsheet mm -hmm. and depending on their keys their access permissions depends on what information they can see aha so not everyone can see everything in not everyone in the diamond club can see all bits of exactly. this spreadsheet but that spreadsheet in inverted commas contains all the relevant information to identify all the diamonds that you've gained access to and put onto the shoot. Has this really kicked off yet in the, in the particular case of diamonds? Are people oh. jumping on board to do this? Yes, absolutely. So it's been a great industry to start with because it's had so much need. Uh, so we have over 2 million block, uh, diamonds on the blockchain wow. at present. Um, and we've got some great strategic partnerships globally. Uh, the Gemological Institute of America, for instance, uh, grades and authenticates uh, 70 to 80% of the world's diamonds. So we take those trusted parties and the information that they're creating and those are the, the sources of fact that we get to, uh, to work with. Yep. And uh, we also do work with the Kimberley process. So the Kimberley process was established to provide regulation, stopping the flow of conflict diamonds into the supply chain and helping to protect legitimate trade. And again, by digitising their processes, we can ensure that regulation and standards are being met uh, right up front from the mine. Has the process been going around long enough yet for you to have any feedback on where it's made a real difference? I think it makes a difference for all the parties across the supply chain, but in different ways. So you've got customs and border control that need to have authentication that the diamond that's 
throughputting their systems uh, was legitimately mined and sourced. You need the um, the graders and the authenticators um, to have confidence that the grade that they're giving a diamond um, will carry with that diamond. Mm-hmm. Jewelers need to know that the diamond they're holding matches up to that certificate and customers need to know that what they're purchasing is real and that it was ethically and sustainably sourced. And it's still, I presume, that $2 million would be a small percentage of all the diamonds currently in existence or fake diamonds currently in existence because these processes come along at a certain part in the timeline of diamonds. Do you see it one day, what, do you hope to get to the point where a significant majority of all the diamonds being traded in the world are on the ledger? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we you start with the big ones, uh, and that makes sense. The, the American Association, etc. Or the big diamonds. Oh, the big diamonds. Yeah, the big the big rocks. Um, because when, when you get down to, to melee, things that are sort of less than half a carat or even um, less than 0.1 of a oh. carat, you know, they're sold in bags and, uh, you know, they're sold as as a package of goods. So we can still track and trace those via the packaging, but economically it really makes sense to start mm. um, with the, the highest value stones and, uh, and we work our way through. But, yeah, we have a, a huge program of work that we're undertaking to digitise that process and to put the certificates on blockchain. When you spoke at the Singularity U uh, Australia Summit, you also gave the example of car ownership as, as something that could benefit from a blockchain approach. Can you, can you walk the listeners through that? Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, we started with diamonds. Everyone starts somewhere. Amazon started with books. Hmm. And there's a lot of interest going on in knowing your customer, know your customer, know your identity. We've been concerned with knowing your object and motor vehicles represents another high value object. It's complex. It has a complex chain of custody and yet being able to prove your ownership, your relationship with that vehicle really matters. So as an asset owner, as a car owner, if I can prove that I own this particular car, that makes the way I can process transactions through motor vehicle registries, through insurers, through banks, um, keep track of my maintenance records and uh, keep track of lifetime warranties, all of those things much simpler. If new parts get introduced into the original vehicle, where they come from, how does that all work, etc. That's they're, they're the exactly. sort of data points you'd be using to identify a vehicle. In the same way you talked about the 40 data points that identify a diamond in the diamond ledger, what sort of things factor into identifying a car? Yeah, it's complex and it is, it's, it's never one particular data point, but it's the system of data points. So yes, there is um, ways that you can map all the different componentry of a vehicle and that starts right back at manufacture and the kinds of things that are included. And there is um, often some authentication, some signatures done on various parts um, right Engine back there. serial number, that sort of stuff. Of course. Well, VIN is kind of the one that everybody knows, but um, on other parts as well. So as you then move through, you know, there's really an emerging wealth of forensic technology that you can use, um, including um, things that spray dots, um, micro dots on mm-hmm. different parts of vehicles. And so you can um, check later what parts um, were original and what parts have been added. But authenticating against, say, written off vehicle registers is really key. You know, nobody wants to be driving around in a secondhand car that they purchased that's in fact been written off and is unsafe. Mm-hmm. This is all a matter of identifying things via data, as you've said. And so whenever you get to issues of data, storing data, cleanliness of data, you know, rubbish in leads to rubbish out. Does that become a big challenge in maintaining the integrity of any blockchain? It is. And, you know, you have to have 
uh, and spend a good amount of time up front making sure that the data is clean and clear. And there's various ways that you can do this. So first of all, with our clients, oftentimes we're spending a fair chunk of time data cleansing and cleansing against standards so that they're interoperable data. So the way that, for instance, one party captures a VIN marries up with the way another party mm. matches a VIN. Surprisingly, you can capture them a huge number of ways. You also need to think about the trusted parties that are adding information to the blockchain along along that journey. So by working with particular parties that we know have particular insights to information, you know, they can bring more credence to it. In the diamond supply chain, we have um, a relationship with GIA, the Gemological Institute of America, and they bring huge amounts of credibility to the authenticity of certificates. And in the same way, the manufacturer of cars brings huge amounts of authenticity to what is originally captured in the embodiment of a car. And then you go through the process. And so as you have different parties repairing uh, vehicles, you know, they can add to the blockchain as well. Interestingly, the system self-governs. So, what do you mean by that? So when a, uh, a vehicle or a diamond shows up later and it's not the same physically as what is captured digitally, then because of the almost time-lapse photography of the way that information is captured on the blockchain, you can go back and you can see what party added that information. And therefore, uh-huh. you've got a full audit trail and therefore, the system can really identify if there are parties adding data that is incorrect. It can pretty quickly identify who those parties are and because, take corrective action. Because if you think about the different sort of areas in which you might want to apply the sort of technology, but imagine in a country like America, if each state has a different processing regime or way they measure or label or grade things, if that's, if that's done on a state-by-state basis, then in the same way there can be a paper trail nightmare bureaucracy between states it becomes challenging to, to establish something on a blockchain if, you know, what you're putting in column three of our hypothetical spreadsheet uh, is, is measured 16 different ways across the entire country, then working out what that number there means and grading it appropriately, I presume, becomes a, a potential challenge. You need everyone to buy in to be part of the chain. Yeah, and look, we do try to catch those things early. So, you know, if you can find that data is captured one way in one system and another in another system, um, you can, you know, run scripts over that to clean it up before it's added to blockchain. So you can identify that early. But these things are evolving. And I think blockchain provides the impetus to really pay attention to not just, you know, a single entity thinking about the cleanliness of its data, but now an entity thinking about the interoperability of that data across other systems. And so... In the, in the way that most people have first heard of blockchain is associated with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And some people are saying these cryptocurrencies will almost entirely wipe out to zero. Some argue you might have cryptocurrencies again. Others are saying it'll just be this. That was such a 2017 thing. Even if cryptocurrencies are just wiped out and don't play an ongoing functioning role in the world economy, will blockchain survive? Is it just guaranteed that blockchain will underpin future you know, models of all different sort of tradables and, and commodities and things like that? Or is it is the jury still out on whether blockchain will really bite? I would never say that a single technology will last forever. And I think you'd be very unwise to do so in a time like this where the rapid development and convergence of technologies is running us up an exponential curve of growth. What I do think is that 
blockchain inherently embodies some principles and principles of distributed ledgers and principles of the democratization of data um, and brings into frame questions about network security and um, and keys and you know how, how we might organize ourselves differently around data that's not in a centralized database and that's not dependent on centralized intermediaries to vouch for all the parties. So I think these principles will endure. Now, you know, the question that often comes my way is about quantum computing and, Mm -hmm. you know, will that uh, smash blockchain? And it well might. And I think for those reasons, you know, we, uh, we have to stay abreast of these kinds of technologies and understand, you know, how they might strengthen and enhance the pre-existing technologies, but how you then adapt and morph, uh, say, a blockchain into that kind of environment. So whether it's a blockchain 2.0, blockchain 3.0, hash graph technology or quant chain or something, you think the, the general concept of distributed ledgers underpinning systems of goods and items and commodities and, and financial structures and all that will endure? Yeah, I think that's where the paradigm shift is and I think that creates uh, new expectations in market uh, about what information is available to me and you know how I might manage information that is you know how I might manage the information about my asset and how I might disclose that information so I think it speaks back to privacy and it speaks back to how competition is conducted and it speaks back to the effectiveness of regulation how regulation takes effect so you know the technologies are a means means to an end and I think at the moment it's challenging the status quo of intermediaries. Uh, but you know, will the technology last forever? No, probably not. And you know, Everledger at the moment is using blockchain extensively, but we use all manner of other emerging technologies as well. We're an emerging tech company, uh, and so you know, we're always paying attention to uh, to how we can think about the provenance of objects um, as it moves through um, quantum and and what follows quantum, whatever that might be. Oh, now my head is starting to hurt. Look, a fascinating conversation, Louise. Thank you so much for filling in some of the gaps for me. Uh, If my uh, girlfriend does manage to twist my arm far enough to, as they say in inverted commas, put a ring on it, you know that you are the first first person I'll be calling. (laughs) Love to speak with you, Louise Mercer. Thank you, Adam. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios. Series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions ads, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions.